0: Without further ado, I want to draw your attention now to these words from the Scriptures, Jeremiah chapter 29, where we read these words. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. Now, you'll be wondering, what is this all about? I'll give you the historical context in just a moment. And to the priests and to the prophets and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, this was after King Jeconiah, and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metalworkers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, the words that the letter that Jeremiah wrote But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You notice in that last verse that I read, verse 7, that the word welfare is used a total of three times. In verse 7 heads up in this way, seek the welfare of the city where I have placed you, where I've sent you into exile. The word welfare there is a word that is periodically found in the Old Testament. It's a beautiful word, and it's a word that we should pray that we experience ourselves and that the city in which we live will experience as well through us. And that's the word, Hebrew word, shalom. Shalom, it even sounds nice, doesn't it? Shalom. Meaning peace, prosperity, blessing. A word that's popular in Christian circles today is flourishing. Flourishing, not dying, flourishing. Carries with it the idea of life, blessing, goodness, and joy. All of that, all of those words are, are wrapped up in that beautiful Hebrew word, shalom. And what our passage is telling us is that we should desire not only that we experience shalom, but the world around us, through us, and through our witness experiences shalom. Is that part of your DNA? And do you think that it's currently part of the DNA of Abbotsford? And if not completely, do you pray that it's going to be part of the DNA, the very internal makeup of our congregation to be a blessing, a source of shalom to the city. Because if it is, you're going to be in line with the passage and other passages of the Bible concerning the kind of witness that we are to give to our city. Now, there are other things I have prepared to say at this point, but for the sake of time, what I want to do is I want to get right into the passage. Jeremiah chapter 29, it was written during a hard time for a hardened people. You read about exile here and you're probably wondering, what is that all about? Well, at a certain point in history, particularly in 586, 587 B.C., and this is ingrained upon the psyche of the Jewish people, what you find is that the people of God, our ancestors, the people of Judah, had for many years turned their backs on God. Now, God created His people to live in what we call, and you're going to hear this word, and you have heard it here many times, the word covenant. God had entered into covenant. He had entered into this formal bond of friendship and love. Theologians fundamentally call it a marriage. God had put the marriage ring, like on my finger, He put that marriage ring on the finger of His people. And they were to be faithful to Him and love Him and serve Him and and all of that. But over time, what happened is kids, what, what they did is they kind of, they took this, this wedding ring. It's almost if like I would take this ring and I would just go throw it against the wall. That's what they did. They took the wedding ring and said, in a sense, we don't want to be married anymore. And they started serving other gods of the nations around them. And God would send prophet after prophet to his people to turn them from their ways, including the prophet Jeremiah. And they would not listen. In fact, oftentimes they turned upon the prophets and even in some cases killed their own prophets. God gave them many opportunities to turn back to him, but they would not. And so God said, okay, what's going to happen is I'm going to discipline you, my people. I'm not going to destroy you altogether, although that's what you deserve. I'm not going to divorce you altogether, although that's what you deserve. What I'm going to do is I'm going to first of all put you some very hard times And then I'm going to begin the process of reclaiming you, restoring you. And so that's what God did. And he worked through an individual named Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of an ascendant nation, very powerful nation at the time, named Babylon. And he worked through Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian forces to descend upon Judah, particularly upon Jerusalem, and the forces of Nebuchadnezzar laid for almost about 2 years siege to Jerusalem, finally broke through Jerusalem, killed a number of people, broke down the Jerusalem walls, destroyed the Jerusalem temple, and then took the weak or the strongest of the people, left the weak behind, and and what Nebuchadnezzar did is he exiled them, that is he deported them about You've got to bear with me because you know I come in as an American pastor. I'm still trying to figure out kilometers, so I'm just going to use miles for this point, okay? But he sent them about 1,000 miles away to the nation of Babylon, in particular the capital of Babylon, which the city was named Babylon as well. So it's 1,000 miles away. And, and, and the, the people really didn't understand the severity of God's discipline. Why are you, why are you being so hard on us? And in addition... They're saying, like, you're sending us for quite a long ways. And the fact of the matter is we've had prophets tell us, well, yeah, we're going to be disciplined, but it's not going to be for that long. We're going to go to Babylon, but we're just going to be there for two years. That's what one prophet named Hananiah said. Don't worry about it. You'll only be there for two years, then you can go back home, and God will have his way with Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah had the hard task. Jeremiah, as a true prophet, Lord said, no, 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 Hananiah is wrong. He's not telling you the truth. It's not going to be two years. It's going to be 70 years. Now, you imagine that. Put yourself in the position of the people of Judah. Imagine if if we and a number of churches in Abbotsford kind of turned our backs on God and God said, okay, you're going to get punished. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you 1,000 miles away. And I Googled that. And first of all, I tried Winnipeg, but that's more than 1,000 miles. And then I found right about 1,000 miles away is Regina, Saskatchewan. I don't know if you've ever been there, but maybe you can picture that. That's a long haul. Different culture, different type of people, different terrain. God says that's where I'm going to send you, and I'm going to send you not for a couple of years, but for 70 years. So you, if you're married, your kids, you're going to go to Regina, Saskatchewan, and you're going to be there till 2092. It's a long haul. Now, you th- let that sink in a little bit. Let's say you're young. Let's say you're a young couple in your 20s. Married, got little kids. God says, I'm going to send you to Regina. You're there for 70 years. That means that your kids, because they're young yet, aren't going to remember much about Abbotsford. They're only going to know Regina. And also that, uh, also this, um, your grandkids are also going to be born there. And then the next generation is going to know Regina as well. But then at that point, if they heed my call to go back, then they get to go back to Abbotsford. But then you think, what are they going to know about Abbotsford? Seventy years is two and a half generations. Wow. Okay, so we let that sink in. That's not good news, is it? And it wasn't for the people of Judah years ago. The people of Judah, of course, then, and this is where our text comes in, the people of Judah are going to be wondering, okay, now that we're there, like you and I, in Regina, Saskatchewan, now that we get here, by the way, we didn't drive there, we have to walk all the way there. Now that we finished that difficult journey and we're in Regina, how are we going to live our lives? And how are we going to, how are we going to relate to the culture of Regina? Or let's get back to the people of Judea. How are we going to relate to the people of Babylon? It's a totally different country, different language, different cultural customs, different way of doing things. So, so. Jeremiah knew that they were, they were wrestling with this question, how do we relate to the culture? By the way, Daniel, the book of Daniel, is also about when he was in Babylon trying to figure out, how am I going to relate? So, do we just kind of suck it up, as it were, and just figure we're there, and we're going to dig in our heels, and we're going to do the best we can or are we going to fight against this culture because we want to maintain faithfulness as God's people? Or over time, do we just kind of settle in and say, you know what, we're there for 70 years, got to learn the language, got to learn the culture, got to learn the ways of the world in which we're living? For those of us who come from, by the way, Dutch background, and I read up on this as, as part of the kind of the American Dutch scene where a lot of the immigrants came in the 1800s. Um, a lot of the times, the people were encouraged to maintain their distinctiveness, to maintain antithesis. You, you, don't, you don't want to enter into American culture because if you do, you will become worldly. There was a, there was a certain legitimacy to that. But what ends up happening is you, get, you end up kind of getting hold up. You see, in Christian circles, and I want to get to the text, in Christian circles, oftentimes there have been there are many responses to the culture but there have been two fundamental responses to the culture one is a form of what we call separationalism i mean that's a proper word maybe uh, a better word is where they would send they, they they would there was a sense of a withdrawal from the culture so what we're going to do is we're going to develop our faith we're going to develop our church culture and what we're going to do is we're going to remain faithful to the lord and we're going to maintain the antithesis, that is, the contrast between us and the world, because we and our children and our grandchildren, we don't want to become like the world. We don't want to have them become, the old term is worldly. There's a certain legitimacy to that. On the other hand, what you find, and this is usually oftentimes in more liberal circles within Christianity, there's a there's an undermining of the distinctive nature of the church and our Christian commitment. And What happens, we start to enter into the language and the culture and the dress and the lifestyle of the culture around us so that we don't withdraw. Instead, what happens is we accommodate. There's a lot being written uh, in Christian circles today about what's called deconstruction in the lives of those in their 20s and their 30s. Um, deconstruction is where younger people over time fail to see and experience life in the church and also the relevancy of the church for the world. And rather than being a part of a good distinctive community, what happens is they start dabbling with the language and the culture and the dress and the ways and the music. And what happens over time is that they begin to deconstruct. It is the faith begins to become dismantled bit by bit by bit in their life. And before you know it, they finally stepped outside the church and now they're fully, fully into the world. They deconstructed. In a sense, what we have to say is a plague on both your houses. We have to be distinct, but we can't withdraw from the culture in such a way that we have no bearing on it. On the other hand, we also realize very much so that we can't accommodate to the culture because then we end up becoming worldly. So what's the alternative? What's the answer? The answer is one which one man called a faithful presence within the culture, that we remain faithful and antithetical, a contrast community within the culture, but at the same time realize that we have an obligation to the culture, to the world, and the city in which we're living in to be an agent of shalom or grace within that culture. Take a look at verses 4 through 7. You Got those up there. okay? Notice verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Now remember, this is Jeremiah's message to the people of God in exile. This is written to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Now notice something that easily pass over. I've sent you from Jerusalem to Babylon. In other words, I've sent you in a very different context. Jerusalem is the city of God. It is the seat of devotion to God and worship to God. It is the seat of love and worship and growth for an antithetical contrast community. And God's saying, I'm taking you from all of that and I am sending you to a very different city, the city of Babylon. It is not the city of God, it is the city of man. It is not the city of the worship of God, but the worship of man. It is not the seat of humility, but it's the seat of pride and the glory of man. You see how he's putting them in a very different context? I'm sending you from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, when you're in Babylon, do this. Very simple. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce... Take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Now, multiply there. Don't think we're here for just a very short time. We're not going to have kids while we're here. Once we get back to our homeland, we're going to have kids. No, 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 you're not going to be there for a couple of years. You're going to be there for 70 years. Do what you normally do. Fall in love. Get married. Have kids. Grow gardens. Eat the produce of the gardens. Do what you normally do. Build up your tribe. Develop those cultural customs. Remain an antithetical contrast people. Remain a faithful people. Ah, but don't forget about the city in which you're living. Just don't say, well, this is who we are, and what happens out there happens out there, because we know it's going to hell in a handbasket anyway. No, no, no. Here's what the Lord says, verse 7. Seek pursue the welfare, the shalom, the flourishing of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. And then he goes on to say, for in its welfare, in its flourishing, you're going to find your own flourishing. I thought this was kind of interesting. In other words, you care for the city, you seek the peace and the flourishing of the city and you pray for it because when you do that, you're going to have a city that is not disintegrating, because if it disintegrates, you're going to bear the effects of that yourself. It's going to have a bearing. You and I cannot escape in its entirety the things that happen in this world. If the world is blessed, we're going to be blessed. If we bless the world, we're going to be blessed. And that's the point of what he's making here in this passage. So what he's saying is, take care of yourself, be a faithful people. But at the same time, don't forget about the city in which you're living. Seek its welfare. And notice he doesn't get into details about how to do that. He doesn't address that. But the principle still applies. Seek the welfare of the city and actually pray for it. So Let me ask you this. Is that, is that in your mindset? Do you, th- you ever think about that? How do you view yourself and how do you view your, 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 place, your place in Abbotsford or whatever city you're from? You view yourself here as just kind of a citizen or as an agent of grace? Do you view yourself as just a member of Pathway, or if you're visiting from another church, a member of that particular church that you're a part of, or do you also see your obligation to be an agent of shalom in that part of the world where God has placed you? Do you care? Do you care? Do you care about the world? Do you care about your city? You know, um, when you do a bit of reading in history, particularly about the early church, you see um, you see this about the early church. You see that they had, and I don't know how well developed it was, but they had a fundamental understanding that they were not to be a part of the world; that they were a distinct community. But they were also, in the providence of God, in the orchestration of God, placed in the world, and they were also to be for the world. The term that Peter uses, I think, in drawing upon this passage, the term resident alien. So, Peter is saying to the church, scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is known as, as the southern part of Turkey today, as the church is expanding, and as people are becoming Christians, and as the church is being developed, he says, as resident aliens, you're residents in this world, you live in this world... But at the same time, you're not ultimately of this world. You're kind of aliens. You're different. You're strangers to this world. So you're, you're not of the world, but you're also in and for the world, and you kind of go, huh, that's kind of a fine tension, isn't it? Indeed it is. But early Christians understood that, that they were a contrast community, but but they also had an obligation. And when you read the historians, it's very interesting that they understood that the church did have some kind of impact in the world around them, particularly in the city of Rome. You put up the, do you have the quote there? There you go. This is what one historian wrote. He said, the church was almost invisible, but she was there at work. In secret, she worked out a remedy for the gravest of ills that plagued Roman society. The outward grandeur of Rome could not hide the internal disintegration which undermined her, such as affluence. Affluence, kids, means they just, there was a lot of wealth, a lot of money in Rome. Not for everyone, but the high class. There was violence, sloth, that means laziness, sexual deviance, family breakdown, religious confusion. That was all a description of the Roman world in which these Christians lived. In contrast to this, the church promoted the dignity of marriage and family, a life of simplicity and stability, and the value of moral absolutes. It was in the midst of the somber shadow of Rome that a little flame burned, pale and flickering though it was, which trembled in the souls of the elect like a faint dawn. Here was a church... How well they did at it is another question. How well we do it is another question. But the principle was, we are a contrast people who live in the world and also for the world. And what you find in the early church is as they led their lives together and as they worshiped together around word and sacrament... What happened is that over time, the Bible says that the church was growing, it was growing rather rapidly, because what the church essentially was saying to the world and to the Roman culture at that time was, hey, come, come see something different. See an alternative world, see a contrast community, see a community of grace, see a community of love, see a community of shalom, see a community of hope, a hope that that shapes not only the way that we live our lives now, but also the way that we approach death. Now, I want to I want to show you something here. Don't do this all the time, but but um, this morning we're gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you something. It's a brief one-minute, 16-second video. Um, I got the permission for this video uh, this past week from the woman who is a part of this video. And the reason why I want to show you this, and kids, I want you to look closely at the video too, because it's going to show you the difference between how a Christian approaches death and a burial and how the world approaches it. And the responsibility that we have in this world To show the world that we are a community of life in this life as well as the life to come. Very quick background. There was a girl who came to our church a few years ago. And I won't go into all the details, but she's a a wonderful young woman in her mid-twenties now, I think. Her name is Brianna. She came in as a single mom with two kids. And um, she was converted and She joined our church, and one day she called me and said that her brother had been shot and killed. She came from a very rough family, not a Christian family, and her brother was shot in a drug deal gone bad. He's probably in his mid to late 20s. And the mother really didn't have much to do, as I understand it, with the Christian faith or the church, but the mother, uh, she said, would like a man of the cloth to perform the funeral and the burial. Now, what ministers do is they'll usually take hold of opportunities like that because at a funeral at a graveside service, you have a wonderful opportunity to bring the gospel to bear upon matters of life and death. And so that's what I did. So I did the funeral, and what you're going to see now is I took a bit of a video. Many people were taking a video of the graveside service. And I want you to listen. There's a there's a plane that goes through, a jet that goes overhead. Um, you're going to hear that. But other than that, you're going to see various people there, and you're going to see fellow gangbangers there, and you're going to hear kind of music that was played at it. And then I'm just going to make a couple quick go- comments, and then we're going to start drawing to a close. If you, hopefully it works. You know, um, when you're in a situation like that, you just, just want to weep over that. And kids, you you are growing up in Christian circles, and you don't know what you've, you've been given. And you know what? When we, in our Christian circles, when we stand at a grave, many times when I lead a worship service, we sing the doxology, right? Praise God from whom all blessing flows. And I led that service... That particular day and nobody knew it and I knew it so after reading some Bible verses together and saying a few words I just sang saying praise God from whom all blessings flow and but but here's my point not only do we have a blessings of a distinctive culture all of the grace of God but we have an opportunity in our own way, you're not going to lead a graveside service, but God may open up another opportunity for you in service in Abbasford at some point to, to bring grace and a message of repentance and faith and restoration and shalom to a people who are without God and without hope in the world in this life as well as the life to come. And really, that's what Jesus did. When Jesus, I'm going to start drawing to a close. When Jesus came into this world jesus came in flesh he took on the flesh of the world so to speak by world i mean people like you and me human beings he took on human flesh and he came into this world not to separate himself from the world not to accommodate himself to the world but he came to provide a faithful presence of the world he brought the gospel of the kingdom the gospel of light He brought a different story or a narrative to bear upon the world and says, when you live according to the world's story, you will die. You live according to the Christian story, you will live in this life as well as the life to come. So he came as an agent of grace, an agent of shalom, and an agent of blessing to the world. And now that he's ascended into heaven and he's poured forth his spirit upon the church, Christ calls us as we participate in his mission to the world to be agents of shalom in his world, to be his hands and his feet in the world. And to the extent that we do it to the world, to the city of Abbotsford, to that extent he says, you do it to me. Matthew chapter 25. Those people who have received grace, and as a people, I trust many of us who know shalom, and if you don't, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know what it means to repent and believe and to embrace Jesus in the Christian faith, well, then you see me. You talk to me either today or in the weeks to come. Okay? But many of us do know that shalom, and many of us do know that peace and that flourishing. And may it be that God creates a deeper burden within us to share that grace and that shalom not only with each other, but for the city in which we live. Let's let's pray. We have to celebrate the Lord, so we're going to do that soon. Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is to be a contrast people. It is all of your electing grace, and we praise you for that. We thank you for your predestinating love whose origins in eternity but expressed in time. We thank you for all the blessings of belonging to Jesus and for the flourishing that you bring to our lives as singles, as parents, as children. Lord, thank you for this. Lord, we pray that this would be the catalyst for us then as a blessed people to be a blessing to the world. So we say with the psalmist of Psalm 67, Lord, bless us and keep us and make your face shine upon us so that that your way may be known among those on the earth. God, grant that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.